here this morning just to hear your word taught, to worship you, have fellowship. A lot of activities going on, Lord. Help these activities be glorifying to you in all ways and all things to take the people deeper and to be a witness for you. That is all that matters. But right here, right now, just bless this teaching through your spirit. In your name, amen. Alrighty, we're in Acts chapter 9. If you weren't with us last week, we had the amazing story of Saul... Getting saved. Now Saul gets a name change here in a few chapters, also known as Paul. I will use those names interchangeably, Saul and Paul. Saul getting saved is one of the most amazing testimonies that has happened. It'd be the equivalent, as we mentioned last week, imagine years ago someone coming and saying that uh, Saddam Hussein got saved, or Osama bin Laden got saved. We wouldn't believe it. And we'd be like, no, you, got, you won't believe it. These guys got saved, they're now proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would not believe it. Saul getting saved is that level. Remember, he was the one that was rounding up Christians, wanting to kill them, wanting to persecute them, wanting them to forcibly give up their faith in Jesus Christ. He had a hatred of the church. And now he got born again and he got saved. So that's where we pick up this morning at. And we're going to talk about the early years of Paul's walk with Christ. But it also goes along with what we read in Galatians. So look at Galatians chapter 1 here. Paul gives a little bit of a background of this, and we're going to keep making references to this. So if you want to leave your hand here, you can. But take a look at Galatians 1, starting verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. That's where we're at. So we're going to keep making references back to that this morning. So with that being said, Paul is now saved. We left off with him with the disciples in Damascus, verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I love this. When did he start preaching, verse 20? Immediately. Immediately. And he went to the synagogues. Now, you've got to know a little bit about what the synagogues are. You have your main temple that's in Jerusalem, and this is where the sacrifices would happen. So you had your main temple in Jerusalem, and what would happen is they set up these little what they call synagogues in the outlying towns and areas. The people that couldn't make it to Jerusalem, obviously, on a regular basis, they would go to these synagogues. And you would have a time of reading from what we would call the Old Testament. And you would have traveling people stop in, and this is where the Jewish men would gather and have that time. So here Paul, he immediately goes to these synagogues. Because these are where the Jews are, the Jews that need to know about Jesus Christ. And he immediately starts telling them that Christ is the Son of God. He takes all this knowledge that he has learned in his time before Christ and now adds to it the knowledge that Jesus is God. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like? And he would say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I know. I met him on the road. Let me tell you my story. And immediately he starts doing this. I think what happens when we first get saved, we walk in a little bit of fear. Fear of saying the wrong things, fear of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and I'm going to mess somebody up really bad. So therefore, I'm telling them about Jesus, I'm not going to be able to answer a question, or I'm going to give them the wrong information, so therefore I say nothing, because I would rather not mess it up. Okay, let me say this very lovingly, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. You're really not that important, okay? We can't mess up heaven and hell, we can't. That, that, that's eternal things, 
I can't mess that up. I can say the wrong thing, but you know what will happen? The Holy Spirit will bring to my remembrance maybe what the right thing to say is. The Holy Spirit will bring somebody else in that person's life to maybe correct that. But I'm not going to send somebody to hell because of my wrong words. They will go to hell because they choose to reject Jesus Christ. So just be careful with that. So what do you share? Share what you know. Well, what happens if I don't know everything? Tell them you'll get back to them on that. But share what you know. Share what Jesus Christ did in your life. Can you go with me to Mark chapter 5, please? Mark 5. Share what the Lord has done in your life. Now, I've joked with you guys before on this. Don't take it the wrong way. But it happens every now and then where somebody will call me up and say, Hey, I got a brother, sister, friend, cousin, co-worker that doesn't know Christ. They're really asking a lot of questions. Will you go talk to them? And my response generally is this. I'm not a hired hitman, okay? It's not that I don't care about the gospel. It's not that I don't care that these people know Jesus Christ. But you know them. You know them personally. If I come in, I'm the stranger they've never met. There's not that attachment. You tell them what Jesus did in your life. You make that personal to them. If they still have questions that can't be answered, contact me. We'll work something out. But the most effective testimony is the testimony of people that you have seen. You've seen how Jesus has changed their lives. So when they get saved... What an amazing testimony that is. Go out and share that. Don't hide. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Share what you know and what you don't know. Try to learn it. Let's talk about this. Mark chapter 5. Here's a great story of somebody getting saved. We're not going to do the verse-by-verse teaching on this. We're just going to kind of hit the high points. Verse 1, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gardenians. And when he, meaning Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by them, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. If anybody needs to get saved, it's this guy. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Quite an interesting statement. Verse 7, And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. What you see is this man is demon-possessed by possibly thousands of demons. So what happens when you see verse 6, He ran and worshipped him. Remember what it says in Philippians. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We say this all the time, and we're not making a joke. The devil is not an atheist. He's not. He understands who God is. He understands what Jesus Christ did on his cross. The devil understands the truth of the scripture. He understands all of that. So when these demonic forces are met with Jesus, they know who he is. They know that he is God. And that's why they say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, do not torment me. Why? Because they know the punishment that is waiting for them. They're basically saying, not now. We know what's coming, not now. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many, thousands of them. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. You see a couple little quick points there. You see the destructive nature of the enemy. 
John 10.10 says that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. He'll give you that fake news of that idea of, I want to bless you and make you better. No, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So what happens now, thousands of them, that's what it looks like here, these pigs are completely destroyed. So verse 14, those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. I find that fascinating. They were afraid. They're used to the naked, screaming, yelling guy that breaks chains and cuts themselves. Yeah, we're used to him. Now that he's completely in his right mind, that's scary. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you can remember back to when you got saved, that people actually liked you more before you got saved. People wanted to hang out with you more before you got saved. And after you got saved, all of a sudden, people thought you were strange. They thought you were weird. In fact, you made them uncomfortable. We were just talking the other day at a study about how Christianity is one of the religions in the world. And I use that term very lightly. I hate to compare it to other religions. But comparing it to like the Hindus, the Buddhists, etc. Christianity has a built-in conviction. When you meet somebody who's a Hindu or a Buddhist, you don't walk away feeling convicted. You walk away saying, oh, that's fascinating. A different culture, different life, whatever. But when you meet somebody who's a Christian and they really start explaining their faith, all of a sudden you realize the eternity of heaven and hell and Jesus. And I have to make a choice. There's something convicting about that. So these guys show up and they see this man in his right mind. They see what Jesus did. There's an automatic conviction. There's an automatic, this is the power of God. How am I going to respond to this? And when you get born again and saved and you start talking to people and they see you're different, you're going to see relationships changing. Because they're going to see you as a different person. Verse 16, those who saw it told them how it had happened to him, who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Jesus, leave. You, you, you cast out the demons and you had this guy that was naked, yelling, screaming, cutting, and we don't want you around. Is that fascinating? Why do they want him to leave? Now, you've got to remember, we're dealing with good Jewish boys here, right? You've studied the Old Testament. What's unclean? Pork. They've got a little contraband swine production going on here. They're getting their little head of bacon on the side. And so, therefore, Jesus comes in, cleans that out. He takes care of two problems at once. We'll take care of the pigs. We'll take care of the demons. And what's the result of this? Verse 17, Jesus leave. This is what I've noticed. When you come to present the gospel to people, they sometimes just flat out don't want it. We sometimes sit there and say, oh, they're not getting it. Their eyes are blinded. Their eyes are closed. Yes, those things are possible. There's also times where they flat out see it, understand it, and say, I don't want it. I want to keep my pork production the way it's going And we don't want to be near it. So what does Jesus do? Verse 18, he gets into the boat. And he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. This is a great idea. Jesus goes to the next town. He starts talking a little bit about how he's the bread of life, the water of life. He is the son of God. Then he says, to prove it, I'm going to bring up this guy. Then this guy gives his testimony. And they do a little speaking tour. This is exactly, this is wonderful. But look what Jesus says in verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Jesus says, Your greatest witness is to go back to those people. Show them how you have changed in the Lord. See, when you get born again and saved, what's your witness? You need to go tell the people that you were around, This is what Jesus did for me. Just, just simply go back and tell them, What the Lord has done for you. Don't overcomplicate it. 
Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Keep it short, keep it simple, keep it to the point. There's another example in the book of John. Excuse me, it's in the book of Luke. Where they talk about the blind man getting saved. And what happened, the blind man has his uh, eyesight miraculously healed. And he doesn't really know what's going on, but he's been blind since birth. And so what happens is the Pharisees and the Sadducees call him in and they say, Who did this to you? Who did this? Did Jesus did this to you? Did this guy claim to be the Son of God? And the guy says, that was blind, says, this is amazing what this man does. And then basically they say, he's not really God. And this man's response is, the only thing I can tell you is, I was blind and now I see. And that's what he did to me. And that's what Jesus does. You don't have all the answers. You can't explain in times. You can't explain the Greek, Hebrew, or the Bible. That's fine. This is what you know. You were blind, but now you see. So that's what Jesus did for you. What you know is, I was full of evil, and now I'm full of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And let me explain it to you. Keep it simple. Do it straightforwardly. And that's what you see happening with Paul. Get saved, and immediately, just let me tell you what Jesus did for me. So he's going around now in the synagogues back in Acts chapter 9, telling people they're all amazed. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? This is an amazing thing. So Saul is learning and growing, and everything's going good. But then look what happens. If you still got your hand in Galatians chapter 1, we see from Paul's own words here. So he gets saved. And it says in verse 16, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. This is verse 17 of Galatians 1. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Most people believe that between verses 22 and 23, there's a three-year span where Paul left. Because he says he returned to Damascus. Look at verse 23. Now after many days, what's many days? Three years. So Paul went into Arabia, the desert, the wilderness, for three years. And what did he do? Sounds like he had a little private discipleship class with Jesus for three years. Now, this is what's kind of difficult. We live in this society where we're busy, just always busy. And so what happens is we hope and pray for a day off. Then we get a day off. And what do we do with the day off? We fill it with things that need to get done. Or you finally have time with nothing going on and you sit at home and you become what? Stir crazy. You get antsy. I need to go do something. We're just constantly in motion. And what you constantly see throughout the Bible is the Lord pulling us out of activity and slowing us down. We just read a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how the Lord does that, that he will use trials and tribulations to get our attention and to slow us down. How often Jesus escaped into the wilderness to pray. How often Jesus withdrew himself from people. How the Lord did this in Moses' life, David's life. And you see now in Paul's life, I'm going to pull you away for three years, Paul. I mean, shouldn't he be out there telling everybody about Christ? Yeah, we'll get to that. But for three years, Paul, I need to pull you out of this. And I'm going to work on you one-on-one. Remember Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I want to encourage you to slow down, take a break, and realize the importance of just sitting with Christ. Can you go with me to Luke 10? Luke 10. Luke 10, we have the very famous story of Mary and Martha. Just read this with me. Luke 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, when I used to teach on Mary and Martha, I always used to teach it this way, that the church needs Martha's. Because somebody's got to get something done, right? We just can't all sit at the feet of Jesus. And so I would kind of do this little mix thing. Oh, we all need Martha's, but Martha's, you, you can learn from Mary's to take a break and sit and stuff like that. And Mary, it's great to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I really just started reading what Jesus said. Just, just looking at his words. Look at Martha's reaction. Verse 40. She's distracted. Distracted. That's never a good thing. Verse 40, Lord, do you not care? That doesn't sound like somebody in the spirit. She's left me to serve alone. Therefore, tell her to help me. One thing you will notice throughout the Gospels, Jesus does not like being told what to do. When you're God, you usually don't like being told what to do. And he has the right to not be told what to do. In fact, when his mother came to him and said, Jesus, do something at the wedding, his response was, woman... Now, we'll get into that one later. But anyway, so, <laughs> Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, have her tell her to help me. His response, Martha, Martha, as we were just talking Wednesday. If he uses your name two times in a row, it's like getting your first name and middle name by your mom. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled. Those are sins. Jesus tells us in the Gospels to not worry, so therefore I worry if I'm sin. Martha is in sin. You are troubled about many things. One thing is needed. Don't you love it when Jesus just simplifies things? One thing. And she chose that. Mary did. And it will not be taken away from her. The Lord wants us to sit. He wants us to be still. He wants us to go to the wilderness for a while. He wants us to get away from people. This is a biblical concept that is repeated from old to new and practiced by Jesus himself. So when you get caught up in the constant activity, be careful of that. Do not let your calendar control your day in any way whatsoever. Understand that sometimes the Lord allows things to slow you down. Illnesses sometimes slow you down on purpose. Sometimes job situations slow you down on purpose. It's kind of fascinating. The Lord has designed us from the beginning to take a day off during the week. But we've reached the point of society that we pat people on the back for working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And it's fascinating. We work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And then we wonder where all the money's at. Because we're going against the grain. We're going against God's perfect plan. It just doesn't work. So what you see is this idea of sitting. Sitting. Now, what does this look like practically? Because things need to get done, right? But things, I mean, we just can't all sit. We can't all just escape into Arabia for three years, Paul. I mean, that's worked for you, but it doesn't work for us. Jesus, you went into the wilderness for 40 days. Well, I'm not going to get that time off from work. How does this work for us practically? We're in a season right now where there's a lot of activity at our house. You know, we got our five boys, and about a month ago, we got a couple other boys for foster care. We got a three-month-old and a 20-month-old. So we got seven boys at our house. That's a lot of laundry. That's a lot of dishes. That's a lot of activity. There's a constant activity. And the Lord, in his infinite sense of humor, we got the boys right when we started hosting a small group. So therefore, for those that come over to our small group on Monday, I'm telling you, that house looks good for one hour. It looks good for that hour you're there. And after you leave, eh, we don't care for the next six days. But the point is, how would it do if I'd go up to dawn? 
who's trying to keep up with the laundry, trying to keep up with the dishes, trying to take care of seven children, homeschool, dawn, dawn. (laughs) You're worried and troubled about many things. I'm just going to go sit at the feet of Jesus and lock the door in my room and don't let anybody bother me. You know, after she hit me, you know, it probably... We live in a world where there's activity. And this is what I'm trying to say. The enemy will use that activity to pull you away from this pure simplicity of resting in Jesus Christ. I used to tell people, I hope you find time. I've changed my words now. I hope you make time. You've got to make it. You've got to make it. Well, how am I supposed to make it? Oh, you can make it. It's called being making things a priority. We have 24 hours a day. And I, when somebody comes up to me and says, I'm so busy, I can't even. I just stop them right there. God love you. I'm not trying to pick on you. You prioritize what you want to do. You're probably not missing meals. You'll probably find enough time to do this or that. I have never in my years of being a pastor run into somebody who truly, truly has every single second of the day occupied with something. We can prioritize the Lord. It's a choice that we choose to make. Jesus set the example. Paul set the example. Mary set the example. All these things. And if we choose not to, what happens? Look at the words used for Martha. Distracted. Troubled. Bothered. I don't want that. Let's learn to sit and be still. And sometimes the Lord allows job situations, illness, sickness, whatever, to actually put us flat on our back for a while. And the time that we have to then be in the Word, worship, and minister, it's there, guys. And I see with Paul, here's this amazing testimony, and God's great response is, no, leave for three years. Leave for three years. So what happens now? He comes back, verse 23. Now after many days are passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now after many days are passed, it goes back to our Galatians 1. We're probably right now, right around Galatians 1, uh, verse 18, where it says, then after three years, he came back. Excuse me, verse 17. Returned again to Damascus, then after three years. So you're right in that same area there. The Jews plotted to kill him. If you're keeping track at home, I count at least five references in the book of Acts where people wanted to kill Paul. At least five times. This is going to become an ongoing theme in his life. People want to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Go with me to Acts 14, please. Acts 14. Five times they wanted to kill Paul. How does Paul respond to this? Acts 14, let's start in verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, there's many different ways you could stone somebody back in Bible times, and everybody had their own flair to it, but the general way was this, is they would take the person laying flat on the ground, and then the first person would take a stone, and it was supposed to be usually about as large as the person's head, some people says as large as your hand, and the first person would drop the stone right on the guy's face. Now, before you moan, they thought this was humane. The goal was to knock the person out right away. So that was their humane way of stoning you to death. We love you so much, we're going to drop a big stone on your head first that hopefully knocks you unconscious. And then from that point on, it becomes a free-for-all on how people want to do it. So imagine that. So here's Paul, drug out of the city, stoned. And then verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derba. That's amazing. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. The guy gets up. So, I mean, imagine 
you're in Paul's shoes. People are trying to kill you on a regular basis. They actually take you out. They stone you. And you get up. What would you do? I'd leave. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Look what Paul does. Paul says, I'm going to circle back around to the exact same cities where the people came to stone me. Instead of fleeing, he goes right back to the same people. And then he says this, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. What an amazing testimony. I'm going to come back around to the same people that tried to kill me. Some people believe maybe even did kill him. If you go reading Corinthians about Paul going to the third heaven. And I'm going to start preaching to them again. We do everything we can in this world to make ourselves as safe and as comfortable as possible. Where if you really, really want to live for Jesus Christ, you have no control over how people are going to respond to that. I mean, we're very blessed. We're, we're meeting here right now freely and openly to be able to come proclaim Jesus. What a blessing that is. Let's never take that for granted. There will come a time where we may not be able to do that. In many places of the world, they can't do that. We're very thankful that we can. But you have to understand the sovereignty of the Lord. There's going to come a time and place where persecution happens. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. The boys and I were doing uh, devotions the other day, and I may have even shared this to you at Wednesday night, and we were just talking about uh, the people that have been martyred for the faith in the Bible. And I said, okay, let's start making a list of everybody. So you've know, you got Stephen, you got James. And you just start making a list, Old Testament people that have died for the faith, John the Baptist, etc. And I said, okay, now let's make a list of everybody that miraculously escaped. So we started talking about, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Paul and Silas in prison. And I'm not saying this is scientific. It comes out to about 50-50. It really does. 50% of the time... God sends angels down and opens up prison doors and you escape. 50% of the time, you don't make it. What does that show? It shows God's sovereign and I have no control over my life in any way whatsoever. It shows that I'm just along for the ride. Here in Acts chapter 9, Paul miraculously, the plot becomes known to him, and he escapes in a basket over the wall, verse 25. Just a few chapters later, he's stoned possibly to death and miraculously rises again. That's the same God that he's serving. The same God. We have to be careful on what we preach and teach when it comes to the goodness of God. You hear me say this all the time. God's definition of good may be different than your definition of good. See, we try to preach God's definition of good is this, health, wealth, and happiness. God's definition of good may be martyrdom. God's definition of good may be an illness that brings glory to the Lord. I heard a pastor teach one time. He said, let's just compare two of the original 12. Let's compare James to John. John is beloved. We love John. Wrote the book of John. Wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. Most church tradition teaches that he lived up in those 90s. Long, full life for the Lord. James killed in the book of Acts. And then the pastor just simply asked this. Who had the better life? Well, John, right? That's how you look at it. I use this example. You've heard me use this before. Imagine you and your friend going to work together. And the boss comes to you, your friend, and says, hey, listen, here's the deal. Um, I need you to work overtime today. We're talking like 12, 14 hours, and we can't do time and a half. We can't do double time, and you're just going to have to work it. And I'm sorry about that, and here's the deal. So you're going to be here for the next 12, 14 hours. Then the boss looks at you and says, oh, you can go home. I'll pay you the full day. Just go home. Enjoy your family. Who had it better? The guy that got sent home early. But yet, for some reason, when we look at death and somebody gets sent home early... Oh, Lord, what happened? What failed? 
Nothing. His work was done. It's time to go. But when you're the one that's lost the loved one early, Lord, what happened? Nothing. His work is done. His time is done. Let's take him home right now. Who had the better life? Maybe James. He got to go home early. It's all in your perspective. So therefore, when I start seeing Paul miraculously escaping in Acts 9, but I see him getting stoned in Acts 14, still the same Lord. God is good. God is sovereign. You just have to sometimes change your definition of good. Because if you go in thinking my definition of good is I'm a Christian, so I will never struggle with money. I will never struggle with illness. I will never struggle with discouragement. I will never struggle with depression. You're ignoring a whole awful lot of the Bible. God says, I am good and I do good. My definition of good is different, which we're going to get to. Verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. If you remember back in Galatians 1, this is where he says that he went down to Jerusalem for 15 days. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. These are kind of Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced Jews. But they attempted to kill him, once again. Attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, if you're a note-taker, between verses 30 on, you don't see Paul for about another ten years. He pops back up in the book of Acts in a couple chapters. I think it's Acts chapter 11. Paul disappears for 10 years. This guy, with arguably one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing testimony ever, the first 14 years of his existence, three years was in the Arabia wilderness, and the next 10 years is in Tarsus. We don't even hear anything about it. Be still and know that I am God. Allow me to move you where I need you at that moment, at that time, and when I want to use you. And for Paul, it was a lot of preparation before the Lord brought him into real public ministry. So if you're in a season right now and you kind of feel like I'm in that 10-year law, then you're right where Paul was at. The Lord has has you at a place and he wants to use you there and just spend that time in the Word, in prayer, etc. You may be saying, okay, I don't even have a job. Well, then you've got a lot of time during the day. Okay, well, you know what? Right now I'm very limited in what I can do because of this. Okay, then you've got a lot of time with the Lord. Okay, I'm in a moment right now where everything is really busy. Okay, then make time. Whatever season you're in, there's an opportunity to be used by the Lord. Paul right now takes a 10-year little hiatus. Does this mean he wasn't worshiping, he wasn't learning? Oh, I doubt that highly. But the Lord says, I have a different plan for you right now. And he goes off the record here for about 10 years. Now, what we're going to finish with this chapter, we're going to finish quickly though, is the Lord allowing his definition of good to bring him glory. Because take a look at this. Look at verse 31, just the second half of it. It says that they were in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. Disciples multiplying, that's good. Take a look at verse 35. They saw him and turned to the Lord. People turning to the Lord, that's good. Look at verse 42, same chapter. Became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord. That's good. Three good things. They were comforted in the Holy Spirit and the disciples multiplied. Good. People turning to the Lord, good. Many people believing on the Lord, good. Three good things happening. Now let's go to the background on these good things. Look at verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. What made the church have this amazing season of edification, peace, and comfort, and the disciples multiplying? Paul leaving. You ever thought about that? The greatest blessing you may give somebody is to leave. 
Chew on that for a while. Now, we joke about that. We joke about how some people are a blessing when you meet them and some people are a blessing when they leave. Now, this right here, though, God's perfect plan, it blessed the church for Paul to step out of the scene for a while. It really did. Paul is blessed because he's now going to go spend about a decade going deeper with the Lord. And what happened is Paul was bringing this persecution with him. The church was blessed by a small season here. However, it wasn't happening. Their chief persecutor got saved. Amen. There's a season. I'm just telling you right now, you may be in a season where it's really, really difficult. It doesn't mean that season's going to last forever. You may be in a season right now where it's really good. Amen. Be prepared as seasons change. So if we really want to see the Lord glorified and, and, and disciples multiplied, are we willing to say, Lord, whatever that looks like? We come to the Lord and say, Lord, we want to see you glorified. Use me. What happens if the Lord says, okay, the way I'm going to use you is to remove you. That's the greatest blessing I can give the church is to remove you. Okay, Lord, I trust you. That's what Paul did. What about the next one? Verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw them and turned to the Lord. Okay, Lord, use me. We just talked about this last week. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's what Paul said. Then we went to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord, use me. And God comes back and says, James, I want to use you. I'm going to paralyze you for eight years. Well, that, that's, that's not what I was signing up for, Lord. When I said use me, I meant use my speaking skills. Use my charming personality. Use my good looks. Lord, can't you have me win the lottery? And I will then really give most of that money away to the poor. See, Lord, that's the way I want to be used. But what happens if the Lord says, the greatest way I could use you, the greatest good that will come out of your life, is to paralyze you for eight years? Okay, Lord, can't we compromise on eight days? Here's the problem with eight days. Eight days is going to look like a fluke, but if you're paralyzed for eight years, the muscles will begin to atrophy, your legs will begin to shrink, people will realize this, and then all of a sudden when you get healed in the name of Jesus, verse 34, and you arise immediately. Not, you are healed in the name of Jesus and go set up OT and PT. No, you are healed immediately. That's going to bring me glory. Can you do that for me? See, what happens if that's God's definition of good? See, we sit here and say, Lord, use me. I want to be glorifying to you. You know, oh, I want to produce fruit. Okay, then this is how I want you to do it. I want you to leave like Paul. I want you to be paralyzed for eight years because I'm good. Okay, what about the next one? Verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. That name really never caught on in the church. Have you ever noticed that? You don't see a lot of, oh, we're going to name her Dorcas. Um, This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, when they washed her, you have to remember from a Jewish perspective, you're buried at sundown. They don't embalm. So therefore, when you die, uh, they clean you up, they get you ready, and you are going to be buried right away. So there's a little bit of a time frame here. So verse 38, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that, Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. You need to come quickly. Then Peter rose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. And Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. 
And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then she gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Okay, Lord, use me. I want to glorify you. Okay, well, by leaving, by bedridden, okay, now by death, the Lord is good and does good. So, Lord, you're saying the most glorifying thing that I could do in my life for you is to die. Yeah. Or maybe a loved one close to you die. Or friend. But, but, Lord, you are supposed to be all merciful and all graceful and all good. And let me just keep repeating this point. His definition of good may be different than your definition of good. It was good for Paul to leave in verse 31. It was good for Aeneas to get paralyzed. And it was good that Tabitha died and rose again. Those were all good things that multiplied the disciples, turned people to the Lord, and had people believe on the Lord. So when we sit here and say, Lord, here I am, use me. And I say, Lord, I want to glorify you. Lord, whatever you want to do to bring people into salvation, I trust your good. Do we really trust that? I mean, do we really stop and say, okay, Lord, I trust it. That you are going to work good in my life, even though when this makes no sense in any way whatsoever. I just encourage you, because once again, some of you here are in a really difficult spot. And you don't see a lot of good going on. But maybe the Lord is moving and working behind the scenes in ways you don't see nor understand. Because he is good and does good. In all his ways, he works good for those that love him that are called according to his purposes. Trust that. There may be a refining going on in your life. There may be fruit going on in your life that you do not see nor understand. Maybe you're in a season right now from your definition where everything is good. Amen. But trust the Lord's definition of good when your season changes. Trust that he is still moving and working in ways that we do not see nor understand. See, jump back to verse 31. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Even in the midst of difficulties, there's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we've got to remember and that's what we need to understand. Trust his definition of good. Trust that through these difficult times that we try to stay away from. I mean, think about it, folks. We use all of our time and energy to try to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. When the Lord says, sometimes I'm trying to move you out of that comfort zone. Because that's where you can really glorify me. And that way you can really be used by me. Real quick here, last verse, verse 43. So it was, he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. That looks like that's just kind of thrown in there. But in Acts chapter 10, you see the gospel going to the Gentiles. This is a big deal. A Tanner is somebody who worked with dead animals. According to the Jewish rules of the day, this is not in the law, but in the Jewish rules of the day, if you were a Tanner, you need to live at least 75 feet away from everybody. Because you were ceremonially constantly unclean, touching and being around dead animals. So for Peter to stay with him, It shows the Lord is moving and working because in the next chapter, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, which would be considered unclean people that the Lord wants to work with. So aren't you thankful God took the gospel to us unclean people? What an amazing thing that that is. Hey, worship team, if you can come forward. Don't forget Ephraim's going to be coming out tonight. If you've ever had any questions about the Jewish fall feasts, Yom Kippur, Rosh Shahana, Feast of Tabernacles, come on out. Hear about this. A lot of you read Exodus, you read Leviticus, you read Deuteronomy, and you're like, I don't, I don't see this. He'll come out and help explain Jesus there in the Old Testament at 7 o'clock tonight. I hope you will be blessed by that. Uh, parents, if you do bring out kids and you need to have them go to a room that's a little quieter for them, we will have the video feed going back in the uh, nursery. We'll also have the video feed going in the foyer there. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, 
there's someone here right now questioning their season of good, help them realize that you're working in ways that we never see nor understand, but we trust you. And Lord, help us to realize that these areas may glorify you and have many people turn to you. That, that's all that matters, Lord, is making disciples. That's all that matters is people knowing you. Help us to live that out, to mean it, not just talk about it, but to truly do it. And we stop and say thank you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen.